Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Impermanence yields the eternal, strangely. That's where this conversation on Sun's life metal ends, and we're very happy with the coiling paths it traces on its way there. The drone metal band Sun, that's spelled S-U-N-N space O parenthesis parenthesis parenthesis, the second part being a kind of typographical glyph, released life metal in 2019 under the Southern Lord Records label. It's their eighth album. There's really no point in trying to describe their sound. It's the kind of thing you need to hear for yourself. So I invite you to find them online and give them a listen so that you know what we're dealing with in this episode. As capstones go, this is our last show of the year. We couldn't have asked for a heavier, more monolithic slab of black granite than this masterful recording. In lieu of elaborating further on our topic, I'll take the time I have here to thank the guests who joined us to explore the weird in the last 12 months, Duncan Barford, Matt Carden, and Victoria Nelson. Thanks also to Meredith Michael for her indispensable assistance, for being a font of wisdom, and for doing three stellar episodes with us in 2022, including the one at Illuminated Brewworks in Chicago. This will forever be the year Weird Studies got its beer. Of course, we want to thank everyone who tunes in to our podcast, especially those of you who've made that bold leap and decided to support us on Patreon. There'd be no Weird Studies podcast without you. You'd think that after five years, Phil and I would have had enough of talking at and to each other. But no, we've got big plans for 2023 and we can't wait to climb back aboard our juggernaut in January. Our next show will be a new installment in our occasional series on the tarot. This one on the death card a fitting follow-up to life metal, and a great way to ring in the new year if you ask us. Happy holidays, everyone. We look forward to seeing you in 2023. Enjoy the show. God. Man. Powerful. Extremely powerful. Listening to it with you made me feel it even more because just because of my lifestyle these days, I've tended to put on sun when I'm driving the car and the sound system on my car is just sucks. And uh, last night I, I listened to the album with my headphones on and really felt it. But, you know, there's something about sharing music with someone. So as I, because yeah. we were looking at each other, it was just like so much, so power. You get to really hear it. Yeah. And uh, just blows me away. That first track just absolutely blows me away. I mean, the whole album is fantastic, but there's something so powerful about that sound. Massive. I never listened to Sun before you hit me to them. So I'm coming to Sun late, but you've been listening to them for a while. How did you hear about them or get into them? Oh, I'll tell you. There's a story there. Um, Not much of a story, but uh, when I was living in Toronto, this is about 2011, 
my barber was uh, in a, if I remember correctly, he was in a doom metal band called Teeth, Mm -hmm. like a Toronto doom metal band. And he was one of those guys who'll just talk your ear off as he's cutting your hair, hopefully not cutting your ears off too. (laughs) Anyways, uh, he, um, yeah, he was a very, uh, you know, loquacious kind of guy. And he told me all about doom metal and how it was different from death metal and how I should look into it. And he told me about, I found out about the film Martyrs from him in the same session Ah. that he told me about Sun. And so at that point I was aware of it, but I didn't really listen to it. Then I went to see Jim Jarmusch's film, The Limits of Control, which is a wonderful minimalist film and not one of his better known films. It's like I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's really cool. Limits of Control is a concept that Jarmusch gets from Burroughs. Anyways, it's really a fantastic film. And Sun was doing the soundtrack. They did a big part of the soundtrack, if I remember correctly. That's when I discovered that type of really intense, slow, distorted guitar, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really felt it in that movie. So then I had this interest in it. And then when I... We came to Ottawa, I started listening, you know, once in a while, get interested. And eventually, eventually I just put on, it was Life Metal. I put on that album on on Spotify or something and it just blew me away. So, Mm. yeah, so it's been a while since I've been kind of like haunted by doom metal, but it took me a long time to really get into it. I was never a metal guy. I was, when I was a kid in high school, we had a metal band called Pubic Death. It was kind of a joke metal band. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> I remember we do these really kind of like it was just for laughs and we'd record these horrible songs like there's one about the devil's food chain about how the the cat eats the mouse the dog eats the frog and you eat my belly <laughs> it's like those were the lyrics it was really really and then we'd show it like just for laughs to people and people who we knew who were into metal were like this is amazing <laughs> so but i've never really been into metal i've always liked it you know i like black sabbath and stuff but i guess it took me all this time i had to be my mid-40s to really get into metal and and i have to admit that it's a very particular type of metal slow drone metal that's how i got into it i can't say i am the most metallic of individuals no i've listened to metal on and off over the years i like heaviness in music Mm -hmm. right uh, not all heavy music is metal, and we can talk about those kinds of questions of distinction, I suppose. But, you know, like I love King Crimson, and right. King Crimson has a lot of stuff that's pretty fucking heavy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd call it metal, but I'm not also interested in, you know, policing or gatekeeping distinctions between no. genres and so on. And metalheads, and I say this with love, but metalheads really do that a lot. There's a whole lot of discourse in the metal community about what is and isn't metal. You know who knows all about that is Jacob Foster. Yes. He did all this research. Sociologist at UCLA did all this research, like breaking down genres. It's actually really interesting stuff that he, uh, hopefully he'll talk about that when he comes on the show. That stuff was fascinating. But anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I digress. But this is a kind of music that, because there are so many metal fans who are anxious to say that this or that is not metal, and for all I know, Sun has had to deal with people telling them that what they're doing is not metal. Uh, one thing that I found interesting encountering this music for the first time was how they managed to keep metal bona fides 
Like it's metal as fuck. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but I feel like it's metal while at the same time, it is as plausibly an example of like avant-garde new music, mm -hmm. you know, like inspired by people like Lamont Young or Pauline Oliveris uh, or Anaya Lockwood or whomever, as close to those kinds of musicians as to like, you know, Sabbath or or whatever. Oh yeah, Stephen O'Malley is very much in that scene that he's uh, very active in the kind of avant-garde music scene, improvisation, yeah. yeah, improvised music and also just minimalist music. He's worked with um, composers whose names I, I didn't note, didn't jot down. You would probably know them. But yeah, so it is, they do straddle that borderline. And you know, there's a lot of things where you're like, okay, there's no drums. Yeah. Right. So one of the sonic markers of heaviness is like propulsive rhythm. You know, and if we're talking about like death metal blast beats, you know, where you've got the dual pedals and the bass drums, so you can really create this extremely powerful bass drum sound, that kind of propulsion, if you give that up, you're giving up a lot of heaviness, right? Mm -hmm. So then the question is like, okay, if you take something that we expect away, that's going to be disorienting at least maybe disturbing for some of your listeners failure of presence it's eerie failure of presence so then what are you going to put in there in its place to restore the feeling that we're listening to an example of something i know namely heavy metal and part of that is just loudness volume mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but with sun their whole thing isn't just loudness it isn't just about like uh, as that line from that Spinal Tap song goes, I just want to make some eardrums bleed. Yeah. The bleeding eardrums might be a pleasant side effect <laughs> of the loudness. Yes. But the idea ultimately comes from sound experiments that Lamont Young, Tony Conrad, Marion Zazila, and their, uh, oh, who else? Angus McLeese and, oh, and... um John Cale, who mm -hmm. was subsequently to become better known as a member of the Velvet Underground. It's a group of musicians that formed a very art group, very much a work of the post-John Cage avant-garde, the Cajun avant-garde. They called it the Theater of Eternal Music. Conrad called it the Dream Syndicate. And what they did was they experimented with playing very long, sustained drones at massively high volumes with as massive amplification as they possibly could. There are people who talk about the experience of going to hear the theater of eternal music, and they talk about it being so unbelievably loud. Like these were small spaces they tended to perform in. This is in the village in the mid 1960, 1964-ish that you would walk into like a little black box theater and the sound would be so powerful that it would be like a physical presence. It would feel like almost a sticky or gelatinous substance that you walked into. It's like the air itself becomes palpable. Yeah. You become aware of sound itself as a medium. As a force, that, yeah, yeah. As a force, as right. something that touches bodies, that penetrates bodies, that does things with bodies and the extreme power of the amplification in a sense is as a means to an end of giving you this 
feeling like the uh, scholar Daniel Albright, a marvelous scholar of modernism who died within the last couple of years, had a term for something very characteristic of modernism, pseudomorph, which is where you're trying to do what an artwork does, but within the medium of another artwork. Mm. So for example, a poet like Gertrude Stein might give you a poem where the words don't really seem to mean anything. It's almost like glossolalia, but where it's poetry that's trying to do a musical thing, but yeah. you're doing it within the medium of words, right? You're making words do a musical thing. Or Brian Eno, who has often compared his, uh, like music for, uh, not music for airports, but um, imaginary landscapes. He's imaginary, got a, yeah. Uh, imagine, not imaginary well, landscapes. Well, John Cage wrote these things called imaginary landscapes. Maybe Eno yeah. did too. Now, Eno wrote something to, he had a title to that effect, basically just painting with sound. You know, you'll often yeah. like spatialized music. Um, yes. That's a huge thing. It's, there's a pseudomorphic quality to that too, Absolutely. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we can say painting in sound or in the case of the theater of eternal music, creating structures. Sculpting. Sound. Yeah. Sculpting in sound. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there's a convergent evolution where you have sun, which is coming out of metal, and we're all about massive amplification in metal. That's just something that's been part of heavy music from the beginning. But it converges with this kind of avant-garde art side in a kind of interesting way. So you're still doing metal shit. You're making some eardrums bleed, but you're also using that for not new purposes, but perhaps purposes that are not as familiar within the metal scene as it would be in, you know, like drone music scene in circa 1964. No, yeah. It's interesting to read accounts of Sun concerts where people talk about the attitude of abstracted listening, that you see a lot of people who are just standing there listening like very deep in their sounds, right? Yeah. You know, it isn't the concert manners that you would expect at, at say, a punk show where there's going to be a fucking mosh pit and people are going to be like wilding out. Concert manners are actually much more similar to what you would see at an avant-garde chamber music performance yeah. or, or a classical concert. Except Sun, they, they do wear black hooded robes. And then there's that. <laughs> and, it's, and it's funny because like you get the feel, I, I, I think it was Greg Anderson saying in response to a journalist question, the question being something effective, are the robes serious? Or like, are you serious about this? They're like, hey, some people come for audio. Some people come for visual. Mm -hmm. And so like there is also that theatrical aspect of these you know, like silent, scowling musicians erecting these cathedrals of sound, yeah. of feedback and noise erected over these massive bass drones. It actually feels sort of appropriate somehow to be wearing a cowl while doing that, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that at least O'Malley in the interviews I've listened to is very, very aware of the ritual dimension of music, of metal in general, I think, but uh, specifically of the music they're doing. This sort of thing should always be done in a spirit of play. Yeah. That, you know, uh, but to project the image of this kind of cult-like thing, it feeds into the aesthetic experience of what you're I mean, I've never been to a Sun show. I've only read accounts, but, you know, people have said what you were just saying about the Dream Syndicate stuff. The air begins to wobble. You can see the air. You know, you, it's like the whole yeah. place, like the atoms are vibrating. They are achieving Virginia Woolf's great goal in, in her writing, which was to, quote, saturate every atom 
Yeah. And that's kind of what I think Sun is doing with metal. The reason why I, I, I still think it's metal and not avant-garde, of course, I'm not going to, you know, make a big deal of it, but yeah. it does retain the other aspect of metal that is so essential to it. Because you mentioned the drums, the beat, the percussion, which is obviously very central. But the other aspect of metal that I think is part of its essence is the riff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Essentially, if you speed up a Sun song, it's just a really cool metal riff. <laughs> but it's just slowed <laughs> yeah, down. So you're like lingering in each note, but especially Slepnir's Breath, the, the, the song we listened to together before starting this, it's very much just a really classic metal riff, like something from Black Sabbath, but yeah. slowed down so much that you're inside the song. It's like you're inside the time of the song. I don't know how to say it. Absolutely. But, um, that's, that's well said. Also, there's a return to origins, because if you look at the history of metal, I mean, Sabbath was pretty much the first, well, I mean, this, of course, this would elicit debate and all kinds of disagreement among people who actually know this stuff. But classically, uh, you'll often hear the Black Sabbath invented metal. And Black Sabbath was much closer to drone metal than to black metal or death metal. Mm. The tempo was pretty slow in Black Sabbath, yeah. and it was very focused on the tone of the guitars and the riff, right? And I think that Sun is all about that. And it's, in a way, it's kind of distilling metal to its essence, which, of course, transforms it into avant-garde. That's what would happen, right? Metal refining, if you yeah. will. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to read this out, and I found the quote that I was looking for. Okay. This is from a, an article titled Heady Metal. It was unavoidable. Nice. <laughs> Somebody was going to write something like that by John Ray that appeared in a 2006 issue of the New York Times magazine. Three basic types of people come to see us play, O'Malley told me. First, the people who are really into experimental music or metal, the passionate music lovers. Then you've got the spectacle crowd who come for the robes and the smoke machines. Last, you have a group of people who are more interested in the physical aspect of it. Those are the people who are just like, I'm going to stand in front of the stage for an hour and a half. Can I take it? Will I wet my pants? Will I puke? I'm going to be at the very front in front of these amps for 75 minutes, and then when it's done, I'll feel liberated, or I'll feel like I've beaten the band or whatever, no matter how tortuous it is. I pointed out, and this is the interviewer, I pointed out that it's fairly uncommon for a band to divide its fan base into the oral, the visual, and the tactile. I'd expected him to make a distinction between metal and experimental music fans. O'Malley nodded politely, then did his best to bring me up to date. Quote, In the past three or four years, since the point when the internet started becoming the primary source for discovering music, the lines between different styles have really begun to blur. The mm. interviewer continues, he spread his arms as he said this, looking at me almost slyly as if he were about to perform a magic trick. <laughs> Quote, There's so much access to so many different types of music now, it's no wonder that people aren't categorizing themselves so sharply. It's pretty awesome, really. Yeah. I think O'Malley is a very, he's very articulate, uh, very intelligent, kind of well-read kind of metalhead. Not that I don't expect metalheads to be well-read. Um, uh, in fact, of all the genres, they prob there's probably a lot of readers. You find metal. more cerebral metalheads than you do cerebral fans of almost any other kind of music. Of Ariana Grande, yeah. Um, although oh shit, now we're going to get the Ariana Grande <laughs> fans mad at us. I love Ariana Grande, but it's just... I, I don't listen to her when I'm in a bookish mood. So, uh, yeah, what was I Yeah, so O'Malley's very articulate. And he, he uh, in an interview I listened to, it was an interview he gave uh, Art Forum, 
the magazine. It was really interesting. He At one point, he's describing their process as being mostly focused on creating the sound, like finding the equipment and patching things together to get that sound. Because one thing that we should probably emphasize is that Sun achieves a sound in their live shows that you won't hear anywhere else. It's not like two guys plugging in their amps and playing riffs it's and turning the amps all the way up no no you know? it's, it's it's like not just it, that even if they have the amp that goes up to 11 it's not that's not what we're talking about it's like yeah. it's like a wall of amps turned to 11 and it's the whole thing is calculated and designed to generate this wall of intense distortion and o'malley describes the experience of playing this music in this interview as he's like we're not so much musicians anymore we're he says, participants in or witnesses of a sonic event. I think that's how he put yes. it. Yes, that's good. That's good. I love the idea of the witness, right? That all you have to do is strum the chords at this point, although that's no small matter. It's no small feat right. to do it properly. But once that happens, you're all just experiencing the result of this one tiny gesture, which is just to strum like a power chord. And suddenly yeah. you're... Everyone is immersed in this sound. They're experiencing yeah. it too. There's, it, it's a, a participatory process that's um, almost kind of like the art is coming at them from outside. Like it's not something they're generating uh, as one would a normal song that you're playing on an acoustic guitar and singing. It's like you're, you're kind of creating an event that you're passively engaged in. Yeah. And uh, I really like that idea. Well, the tactility. Yeah. Of sound. One thing I've read in one of the articles that I, I read in preparing for this conversation, they talk about playing in old churches in Europe, and there's always like a ton of dust that mm -hmm. gets like coaxed out of the old plaster and the old stone walls. They shake enough that yeah. there's like a rain of dust particles while they're playing. And uh, okay, so this is a problem for me that I've never heard Sun Live. I've never had that experience. And this is a kind of thing where it's like making a Sun record is going to be an interesting challenge because since that tactility, that sense of being with other people inside a sound, inside a kind of a pseudomorphic sculpture in sound, mm -hmm. it's an embodied experience. It's only going to happen when you're like actually at one of those concerts. So the artifact life metal like this particular album which was engineered by steve albini who is known for being able to really get a loud sound in recordings it's engineered in such a way that if you play it on your home stereo system at maximum volume you can kind of really get a sense of that but of course it isn't going to be kind of the same as when you're there and that focus on the ineffable moment like this moment right here, that sound is not just an event, but an unrepeatable event. Yeah. You know, you could go to a Sun concert and hear them play what that song that we just listened together between Slepnir's Breaths. And maybe the pitches would be more or less the same. Not that there's really that many pitches. There's not a huge amount of variety of, you know, melody and harmony. No. It isn't that kind of music. The vector of aesthetic complexity is pushed out of the horizontal realm, away from thinking about like complicated melodies and forms, and into the vertical realm. Yeah. And each time, you know, we get a new drone, like that's its own little world, its own little ecosystem. You might even think of each one of those things as a little organism 
that's born and it lives a while and it dies. And when it dies, it dies spectacularly in this crunch of uh, sorry, were you saying? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it, it, that's a function of all the artifacting that happens around the note. Like the, like right. you said, the sounds of the hands sliding across the fretboard of these intensely distorted guitars, that creates its right. own kind of sound. And then the overtones that develop as a result of yeah. this massive amplification and the space. So you're getting a very unique, I mean, this would sound completely different in a church than it would in another type of space, you know? Or, yeah. or you know, playing at home. So certainly the sort of sense that each note is something that they are building in real time, that each note is an event. And it's an event that has its own inner direction as the layers of overtones are added. And as the, maybe the fundamental tone like wobbles, like they play a lot with kind of expressive micro intonation, like kind of microtonal intonation where we'll hit a note and your ear is at least if you're mean, you're trying to figure this music out. You're just like, what the fuck note is that? It's yeah. like, it might be an extremely flat E or an extremely sharp D, but not exactly a D sharp or not exactly an E flat. They will do all these, you know, with, with intonation and with overtones, with tone color. Like, you know, sometimes they'll add just a dash of like cello or pipe organ or something. Mm-hmm. But not in a way of like, okay, Ray Manzanaric is going to perform the sick organ solo. No, not at all. It's, it's... Instead, it's like we're building this vertical edifice yeah. of sound story by story until these moments, these sounds, they're like the buildings that you glimpse in dreams and possibly tall and massive. And then they start to crumble. And there's this almost like terror <laughs> seeing a whole world beginning to kind of crash at first slow and then fast and then boom a new note comes in like i was playing this as loud as i possibly could on my home stereo and flipping out listening to this and i'm like what must this be like live what you have is a bunch of people who are getting together to live inside a sound if the sound is an event it's an event that people are a part of Tony Conrad said, looking back in the years that he and Lamont Young were playing in the theater of eternal music, Conrad says, in retrospect, we lived inside the sound for years. I love that. We lived inside the sound. Yeah. For him, it was like living inside a dream. They spent all day, every day, for the period of time they were working together, building these sounds. Mm -hmm. This, I think, is one connection between Sun and that avant-garde for sure it's that sense of like we want to build not just pseudomorphic like sound sculptures but we want to build sound events that people can come and hang out in and the thing that so much of that kind of avant-garde art was playing with was ephemerality the idea that these are events and you can record an event but that's not this you know like your picture of your birthday party isn't the same as actually being at your birthday party right right And so that's another input from the avant-garde is the necessity of liveness, that this is music that takes place in a time and space, and it thematizes that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Earlier, you dichotomized it in terms of the horizontal and the vertical, and I like that. 
Um, another way to say that is that music is usually focused on the extensive relations between notes, like how one notes relate to the next note and that sort of thing. But here you're saying that there's a plunging into each note, right? So that yes. each note can be allowed to be its own thing. So not extensive relations, but intensive, the intensivity of the sound as such. And I think that has something to do with Clement huh. Greenberg's idea of medium specificity. Mm. The artwork's folding in on itself so that it explores its own kind of essence as a medium. It tries to get to what it like, the goal of a true painting is to make us feel what it is like to be paint, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and uh, in this case, uh, like you look at the riff. So I used to be in bands and I was in prog bands, so pretty close to metal. I mean, and some of the stuff was heavy and uh, this is when I was quite young. But there's nothing more exciting than finding a riff, right? Because a riff is like a little world. It's like a little poem, really. It was always disappointing to see the riff nested in its final kind of dwelling place inside a song. Because although you get a song from the riff, you lose the magic of the riff in itself. Oh, I like that. There is a magic to the riff. It's like, oh, check it out. Somebody shows up at band practice with this awesome riff. Everybody listens like, oh, my God. It's just pure potential. The riff is all, it's fully just an intensive presence. It has all this potential to produce more music. It wants to be in songs, but it could be in any number of songs. But then you lose that potential when you put the riff in a song, uh, when it turns oh, into smoke on the water, you know? Like, <laughs> so, because the da, oh, da, had, da, it could have been anything, right? I had that experience. I heard the riff to smoke on the water before I heard the song. Mm-hmm. Because it was sort of like a joke. Like yeah. it, it, in the 80s, Deep Purple Smoke on the Water was the ultimate example of a kind of hippie music that was very, very out of fashion. So people would like mock that riff. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, that's a fucking cool riff. And then when I finally <laughs> heard the song, I was like, oh, it's yeah. not that great. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's all, it's just... all they have is the riff. They didn't have a song to go with the riff. The song existed only to support the riff, but of course, then the riff is kind of left on the side because the riff is just floating in a non-song. But if they just had taken that riff, slowed it down, and then played it like Sun would, I mean, Sun could make Smoke on the Water sound amazing. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> so That yeah. would be awesome. Like with Slepnir's Breaths, I listened to that many times before I started even thinking about the structure of the parts. And then when you speed it up in your head, you're like, oh, I get what they're doing here. Yeah. But it wasn't important to me at first. It was only once I had the shape of the song in my mind that I started to play out the notes mentally at like a normal tempo. And then I could see yeah. how they, they formed kind of classic metal riffs. You probably picked up on that right away. But for me, I was just in the distortion, not thinking at all about the structure of the song or the structure of the melodies or anything. Well, those bits that you were saying, I think absolutely right on the money in between Slapner's Breaths, when you get the stanzas of the poem and, oh, and it's God, actually yeah. and it's actually two poems and maybe we should talk about that too yeah, yeah yeah the text the the poem by two aztec poets the first of whom the major part of it is hold on i wrote this down i actually practice pronouncing i have it in front of me but i have not practiced i won't try <laughs> nisa wakoyo oh is that how you say it okay nisa wakoyo and then the last part the third stanza is Ayo Kwan Quetzpaltzin, but I am sure I said that wrong, but in any event, whatever. So like between each stanza of the poem, you get what really kind of functions as almost like a refrain. 
which is a thing that you do in ordinary song composition all the time where you know sing a verse and then there's a little instrumental interlude and there might be like a riff associated with that and it kind of marks the boundaries between verses and in this case it was that thing that you quite rightly said reminded you of those tibetan horns those mountain horns yeah i don't know maybe it's just because the music sounds like it should be played from a mountaintop but it's a perfect example of what it means like it's actually a riff it's just a very slow riff on that low note it's just like yeah oh and how they move from one note to another so i was talking about how each note sometimes is almost like a whole life cycle of a little sonic organism and when they die they die spectacularly these moments between the pitches Mm -hmm. where the pitch starts to break up into noise and there's a sort of like moment where their new note comes in but you can't quite figure out what it is like you, it doesn't, yeah. you don't hit the center of the note yeah. and those moments between the notes that are just, uh, one thing Sun does that I really like that is for really important points. Like when we hit that low note of that riff, it's like buying the extra crunchy chicken at your favorite fried chicken place. Like, no, no, no. You need to fry and batter that a few more times to get like fucking two inches thick of a crunchy coating on that piece of chicken. And so like, you know, like they crunch it the fuck up in those moments. Right? And the articulations between the notes are, it's like watching a, an arthritic Titan get up in the morning, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like everything is, there's a lot of crunching between, uh, Earlier, you were talking about watching it. It's like watching somebody build this gigantic dream building, this dream structure that then collapses, comes apart. And uh, I thought that was a beautiful image. Of course, I would have held on to that because of the brutalism of this music. Sun is like looking at a gigantic, brutalist building. It's all about these, I, I agree, it's all about these big, like huge planes of color with very kind of rough edges. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a Rothko. You were saying on Twitter that Sun is like the Rothko of music. And I think yeah. plenty of abstract expressionists work with color fields. But Rothko was, uh, I don't know if unique is the word, but he was particular, singular, in that his color fields were jagged. They're like torn yes. out of a world of color. They're like a tear from a color world. Ah, and I find that's a quality that reminds me of that in this music the way the notes don't quite fit because you can imagine they could have recorded this with really clean articulations between notes but there's a choice there to have it be as messy and as dirty as it can be as they look for the note and of course there are two guitarists playing the same thing but with a very very kind of loose tempo so you know they're not going to land on the next note at the same time it's going to be a little one of them's going to start the other one's going to follow and so they fall into the next note somewhat haphazardly and that just adds to the the thickness of the of the experience and the intensity of the sound it adds to the heaviness of it yeah yeah this is like it makes it so fucking heavy those moments where they really put a lot of extra crunch yeah a lot of extra batter (laughs) on the transitions between notes happens in points of extreme power like metal is about power and there are moments where like we want to just make you feel that power 
And, you know, you can't hit every note equally hard. So, like, if we were talking about Mozart, some totally different kind of music, classical music, or Beethoven, one thing that analysts would do would just point out how there are different kinds of cadences, right? Mm -hmm. You know, ways that the music glides to a rest, and there are technical things that you do as a composer to do that. It has to do with tonality, what key you're in whether you're just visiting a key or whether you're well and truly in that key. And there are different kinds of cadences and some are stronger than others. And someone like Mozart is writing compositions where the different cadences are balanced against one another in such a way that at the ends of very important sections, there are particularly strong cadences, right? Well, this isn't tonal music. This is, you know, modal. This is music that tends to drift around within a mode. It's not tonal. It doesn't work the same way as like classical music doesn't have cadences, but those transitions, those crunches, function analogously to cadences as points of arrival, and some are more important than others. And so like in the last track on this album, Nove, mm. you get to, I think it was 2440, there's a god almighty arrival on a note. They, they, they just empty the clip and all the shit you can do to make, make you feel the power of that transition. So you land on that last note. Not quite the last note, but it's basically the song is over at this point. It only has like seven minutes left at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's basically over. <laughs> So we always said we wouldn't do ads, and, and we're not... They're not exactly <laughs> doing an ad, but we kind of are. This is an ad swap, and I feel like we have maintained our moral purity here for two reasons. Yes. First of all, Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast is going to be shouting us out, and we are shouting them out. So we're not getting paid for this. One reason why it's not exactly an ad. And the other reason is because we genuinely like uphold the importance of the partial examined life 
to say that it's a resource for people interested in philosophy is an understatement. Each episode of PEL delves deeply into a specific philosophical text, and they do it in a language that is immediately accessible to people who are not necessarily initiates of the philosophy game. Yeah. Partially examined life is proof of concept of what para-academic or alt-academic projects can do. The hosts of it are four guys who were philosophy students back in the day, decided not to become professional academic philosophers, and instead have used their training, their skills, to create a series of podcasts that form, I think, a really valuable, for one thing, a valuable background for the kind of things that we talk about on this show. I think it often happens that we hear from people who are like, oh yeah, I like listening to the show, some of the philosophical stuff. It's a bit out of my depth. And you know, the one size fits all advice we can give you is go over to Partially Examined Life, look through their archives. You will probably find a show related to whatever it is we're talking about and you will hear a wonderful unpicking of all those philosophical knots that you thought were over your head. Turns out they're not. Yeah. This is a way of getting a philosophical education that's also like a ton of fun. So we love the Partially Examined Life. You know, it was one of the podcasts that served as a model to us when we first started thinking about putting together a podcast. It was and remains the gold standard of philosophy podcasts. So check that stuff out. Join the over 45 million downloads already pondering with the Partially Examined Life. And find new episodes wherever you stream your podcasts or at partiallyexaminedlife.com. We've planted a few seeds. I think we need to like water now just to give us a sense of the shape of things of this album. So we're, we're talking about life metal, uh, which is obviously a joke. Uh, it's a play on death metal. This is their eighth album, Sun's eighth album, and it, it's just four songs, and the songs are very long. I think the album has a total running time of like an hour and eight minutes. It's over an hour long, and it's four tunes. I mean, another genre we could have brought in the conversation is ambient. Uh, in fact, Spotify was recommending a bunch of ambient albums to me, none of which I think have anything to do with Sun, but Spotify <laughs> seemed to think that I would next want to listen to relaxing tones or whatever, like Sunday afternoon ambient or something like that. <laughs> and Phil mentioned some lyrics earlier. There are lyrics only in the first track between Sleipner's Breath. And I thought maybe we could just read the lyrics because yeah. they bring in a cosmicism, I think is the word, or nihilism, yeah. perhaps. It's funny because it contrasts with the idea of life metal. Because one of the things they... Greg Anderson and Stephen O'Malley, at least it was, I think it was just Greg Anderson saying this in interviews that the, they wrote this album in a really good time in their lives. Like Greg Anderson had kids and they were in a very positive place. So they wanted to write a kind of joyful album. And yeah. this is what they came up with. And it is very bright compared to some of the earlier stuff. There's a brightness to the sound, the way they recorded it completely analog. And so it feels off the floor. It feels like they're playing it now. It feels performed yeah. in a beautiful way. And yeah, the sound is really kind of bright and luminous in a weird way compared to some of the older stuff, which it's Luciferian as opposed to Aramanic if, for the Steiner nerds out there. It's, <laughs> it's, it's reaching upwards instead of down into underground. Yes, that's well put. So I'll just read the lyrics and maybe you can comment. As Phil said earlier, these are it's a combination of two poems by um, 
Aztec poets of the 15th century. So these are poets who lived probably in the, the last generation before the arrival of the Spaniards in, in Mexico. Not forever on earth, only a little while here. Be it jade, it shatters. Be it gold, it breaks. Be it a quetzal feather, it tears apart. Not forever on earth, only a little while here. Like a painting, we will be erased. Like a flower, we will dry up here on earth. Like plumed vestments of the precious bird, that precious bird with the agile neck, we will come to an end. He goes his way singing, offering flowers, and his words rain down like jade and quetzal plumes. Is this what pleases the giver of life? Is that the only truth on earth? All the little hairs on my arms are standing up. I know. Especially when you know where it comes from, where that civilization was in its, you know, life cycle at that point, what came next, but also just the kind of, um, the tragic cosmic view of the Aztecs, how they saw reality, how they seemed to have appreciated impermanence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just such a powerful thing. So I find it really strange. I never looked at the lyrics till yesterday. And I always assumed the lyrics would evoke something very Northern European, considering the, the song's called Between Slepnir's Breaths, because Slepnir is the horse of Odin, eight-legged horse that Odin rides into Armageddon there. and uh, Not Armageddon. What's it called again? The final uh, battle? Ragnarok. Ragnarok, yeah. And the song begins with the sound of a many-legged horse or an army of horses. Like, it's not clear. This, this tramping sound of like a stampede of horses. But then we move into this Aztec kind of uh, space. I don't know. What do you make of it? What do you make of the lyrics and how they set the table for the album? Well, I read somewhere that Aztec poetry is particularly occupied with impermanence and transience. But I don't know really anything about Aztec poetry, so I'm certainly not qualified to say. Certainly these poems, the poems that make up this text, are... I wouldn't say nihilistic. <laughs> in nihilism, you would say that is the only truth on earth. Yes. For the last line, to positively assert that the truth of things is that there is nothing. Right. Or that it all amounts to nothing. But this ends on that plaintive note. Is this what pleases the giver of life? Is that the only truth on earth? Right. The question. In fact, that whole that whole stanza. He goes the way singing, offering flowers, and the words rain down like jade and quetzal plumes. Is this what pleases the giver of life? Is that the only truth on earth? That to me is seeing, and also it goes so beautifully with the earlier part of this poem that tells us about gold and jade and quetzal plumes, all of them uh, being subject to dissolution and destruction. The sense of looking at what is most fair, what is most beautiful, and seeing in every beautiful thing the grinning death's head staring out at you. Mm -hmm. But it goes the other way too, and this is to me that I think meditating on impermanence and death is not necessarily nihilistic because it works the other way too, that you can stare into the empty sockets of the grinning death's head and you can also see in there what is beautiful, the jade and the gold yes, I know. and the quetzal plumes. It's all there. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, isn't that a thing? Like beautifully decorated skulls? 
Yeah, well, um, like the gloriously jeweled skulls. This is like a. I mean, I'm betraying my lack of cultural knowledge here, but I feel like that's a South and Central American. Absolutely, in Mexico with Day of the Dead skulls. Um, yes, and also the whole tradition just in Europe of um, of vanitas painting, where you yes, put skulls right. among really beautiful things. And of course, there's a condemnation there of luxury and all that, but also an appreciation of the beauty of those things, the beauty of impermanence. So absolutely, yeah. When I said nihilistic, I was thinking more of just the general affect or mood of it, not well, philosophically. I think you're right. Absolutely right. Let's be real. It's kind of metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of metal to contemplate the possibility yeah. that the bringer of life is also the bringer of death and destruction. And the only truth on earth is that he goes his way singing merrily and just fucking trampling out life beneath his feet. Yeah, the scattering his beautiful things while he destroys. That's a shocking and very metal kind of image, right? That line, he goes his way singing, offering flowers, and his words rain down like jade and quetzal plumes, reminds me of Lovecraft's uh, god, their Nyarlathotep who yeah. is kind of this Dionysian figure that comes into the world dancing and spreading knowledge and bestowing crazy wisdom upon everyone he meets. And then, of course, driving entire cities and kingdoms into absolute madness with this joyful frolic through the cosmos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I really love that, that image. It reminds me of a story that's very often told in Zen circles, I, I wish I could remember offhand where it comes from, of uh, a monk who is chased by a tiger, and he is chased right off a cliff, and he is holding on by a like a vine or a root sticking out of the cliff, and the tiger is pacing back and forth at the top of the cliff, waiting for him to come back up so he can eat him. And the monk looks down, and there's this abyss below him. And meanwhile, the vine that he's holding onto is pulling out of the cliff. He'll die if he goes up, and he'll die if he goes down, and he can't stay there. And at that precise moment, he notices some strawberries growing out of the cliff, and he pops one in his mouth, and it tastes so delicious. And that's the story. The second of the poets here, um, I'm just going to, you know, butcher it, Ayokwan Quetzpaltzin. I read up on him in, on Wikipedia. 
And there I learned that he had, he was uh, like, both of these poets were actually nobles, very important figures in their societies. And uh, this guy had, he built a temple to a god he called the unknown and unknowable god. And mm. in this temple, in this one temple, no human sacrifices could be performed, not even animal sacrifices, although all of his other temples were as fond of human sacrifice as any Aztec temple. I just love this idea, this note of doubt, this one temple that it had to be remain empty because the God is, we don't know what this God would want. And mm. I don't know, I feel the presence, maybe that there's a, I don't know, of course, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just riffing off of what I've read on Wikipedia, and the lyrics to a sun, <laughs> to a sun song. But uh, I feel the presence, maybe that there's that doubt, that doubt as to whether this is all there is, right? Because, I mean, yeah. let's admit it, Aztec society was very violent and... Yeah. I don't know. Perhaps I am being overly programmatic or trying to read a program into this music, but it seems to me that that opening track, it's conspicuous because it's the only one with vocals and with the text, and it ends on a question. And it seems to me that that question hangs over the rest of the album. Mm. A question, is this the only truth on earth? Is, it, is, is that it? Buddhism is a religion of impermanence, but it also... It doesn't just tell you that is the only truth. There's also the truth of nirvana. Yeah, Byung Chul Han. I mean, I don't, I haven't read the book, but I was reading about it on the Discord, and I think it was Bleary Enthusiasm quoted it saying that Byung Chul Han wrote a book on Zen, in which he states that Zen turns a no into a yes. That's yeah. It's a nice, simple way of putting it. I feel like this album is about turning a no into a yes. I love that reading. I love the reading that the, the following three songs are answering that question yeah, without negating it. It's saying a yes that's also a no and a no that's also a yes. <laughs> yeah. Death continues to radiate from every song Yeah, as these sounds are built. I think I'm thinking of them almost as like little organisms, mm -hmm. partly because, you know, there's a old sci-fi movie from the 50s called Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen, of all people, as a romantic hero. It is in many ways a corny and silly film, but it has one really remarkable innovation, which is that there are two electronic music pioneers and beatniks living in Greenwich Village right after World War II, the Barons, Louis and B.B. Barron, who a producer from MGM just randomly met them in a Greenwich Village bar and got the idea of having them make music for Forbidden Planet. What they did was they built little contraptions out of, uh, I think, vacuum tubes. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm losing... Okay, today, of all days, for some reason, I am unable to keep any details in my head, so I can't remember what kind of circuits they were. But basically, they were creating little cybernetic circuits so little circuits that would set up a feedback structure, and each circuit would have a completely autonomous and unique mode of existence. There was very little way to predict how a circuit would behave, what kind of sounds it would make. Some would make little, sprinkly, ploopy sounds. Others would make harsh, buzzy sounds. But they really embraced the idea of creating music Actually, it wasn't even called music. It was called electronic tonalities by the film. But 
well, they became fascinated with the idea that the music they were making actually consisted of a series of little sonic organisms, the circuits that would have their own little living. They would be born, they would live a while and they would die. So maybe something of that conception has sort of remained with me and occurred to me as I was listening to this music, which just really does consist in many places of a series of long drones, but each drone is its own little organism, a musical yeah. organism. And I mean, maybe this is a fanciful notion, but this is what I mean when I say this album is giving us birth and death from beginning to end. It's soaked in death. Yeah. Because we feel those moments where we're like, ah, those incredibly metal moments where we land on a bassy note with a massive crunch. Those are moments of death. Yes, they are. But there's also like so much life in this album, in the teeming and proliferating overtones and harmonics and all the sounds that come swimming into view within that one sound. So much life and so much death. And you could say at the very least that the album leaves it on a knife's edge, like a coin flip turned on its side. Yeah. Between life and death. And yet there are moments where I can feel us tipping towards life, where it's just sort of like that moment. You know, the reason why that Zen story isn't nihilistic is because he eats the strawberry. Yeah. That's the yes. It, that's the yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And every strawberry is savored in that predicament. Facing the facts of existence is not nihilism, right? (laughs) That's right. It's heavy. Yeah. It's stopping at the facts of existence or not realizing that the facts of existence are more than facts. They're also on some other level, I don't want to say symbols, but they are truths, you know, the facts are truths and truths are multifarious and they refract light strangely and they're, they can be looked at from different angles and they're interesting. Facts are not interesting until they are allowed to become truths, at which point they gain a kind of poetic relevance. So like, I, I totally think that this album is about affirming. So in a sense, it's not about negating death metal. Oh, fuck all that death metal. We're going to do an album called Life Metal. No, it's... It's seeing the life in death metal. It's seeing the life that was always in metal and affirming that without trying to negate or block our ears to what is being revealed in metal, like the futility of things, right? The transience of things. You know, the, the metal is, I don't know, I, I love metal. I love what it's doing with music, you know? It, it, yeah. In a way, it's kind of, picking up the mantle with classical in a pop register like it kind of absolutely yeah it's kind of absolutely yeah it's kind of continuing what classical music was doing in this new way yes it's extremely operatic but it also has its own just like the opera in general has its own kind of philosophy or religiosity so does metal it's not the same Metal is its own way of looking at life, and any metal fan knows this, right? It's more than the music. It's a whole world. One thing that really hit me is like, okay, so so much of what they're doing is land on a new bass note, hang out there for a while, build a whole edifice of overtones and sound colors and so on, allow it to start falling apart and then land on a new one. If this was an event score like a Pauline Oliveris type event score, 
I feel like the instruction would be play a note and then wait a while and then move to another note. But each time you'd play a new note, ask yourself, what is the most fucking awesome thing I could do next? Yeah. And then you do the shit out of that thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me that's how this music was made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's this one moment at the end of the second track, which is called Troubled Air, where we land on a D. And in that soup of overtones, you get a, an F sharp, which is a major third above the D. Oh, wow. So major thirds are not metal. <laughs> I mean, I, I joke, but like... No, they're not. The idea, they're not. You, you yeah, won't major, hear me. Yeah. yeah, that's a kind of sound that we always associate with optimism, right? Mm -hmm. That's optimistic music and dark, pessimistic music is going to be minor. And with this, we've just have this D pitch, but this overtone starts, you know, it's not so much like we play at this note as this note is one. It is wrenched out of this matrix of sound, this D sharp that just gets louder and more intense. And there's this, first time I listened to this, actually, I listened to this album a couple of times sitting in Zazen position in front of my speakers just cranked as loud as they will go. It was actually a very restful, very beautiful experience. But then it's also not the only way I'm going to listen to this music. But I heard that F-sharp harmonic starting to split through that solid slab of D. It just blew my fucking mind. And it was like beyond optimism, it felt like a revelation. It felt like some kind of like an answer to that question that's left hanging. And I love that it's an overtone because it's arguably involuntary. It forced itself on the music. You know, yes. this like this perfect major chord suddenly emerges from the, the chaos and yes. affirms itself, you know, in spite of everything. I exactly. love it. Exactly. It's the strawberry, right? It is. It's yeah. the strawberry. And I was like, this isn't so much optimistic because optimism is something that human beings have or don't have. Right. Right. It feels like a natural force, something impersonal and sublime. And it reminds me of like the music of Anton Bruckner, which is going to mean nothing to most of our listeners, but almost a sense of like, you're not seeing people trying to paste a happy face over the dark doings of the universe. It's the universe showing you itself in showing you that much as you might like to curl up in the fetal position and say, I have no resistance. I give up. It's all too difficult. The universe is going to grab you by the scruff of the neck and say, no, motherfucker. Yeah. I'm not done with you. Look at the strawberry. <laughs> Enjoy. It! Enjoy it. <laughs> um, but that brings me straight to the heart of the brutalism thing. So I'm thinking yeah. now of... Um, because this is, we've been kicking this around. Like uh, during the summer, I wrote a short piece on mm. Patreon about brutalism as a way of, it was like kind of a mental note. Like I want to get these ideas out before I lose them because I'm really, really into brutalist architecture these days and thinking about it all the time and loving the experience of stumbling upon a brutalist building and just seeing how fucking beautiful that stuff was, even though no one noticed. <laughs> I, I just love the, the overlooked nature of brutalism and how to this day people will, you know, rail against it and not even to this day they refuse to see its tremendous sublime beauty. But anyways, in this piece, I'm just trying to tell my story of how I discovered brutalism because I used to hate it like everybody else. But I'll just read a couple of paragraphs where I, I come close to what you're expressing here with that overtone 
coming in and, and forcing a major chord in this dark metal music. But because it's that, because it arises imminently out of the chaotic interactions of all the sonic material, we can't really attribute it to some human agency that put it there. Yes. Is that's what you're yeah. saying, right? So yeah. that's exactly it. Look, I'll just read this bit. What is brutalism? Allison and Peter Smithson, the British founders of the movement, said something very important at the outset. They described brutalism as, quote, an ethic, not an aesthetic. No doubt the vision behind brutalism was a socialist and humanist one, as motivated by yearnings for a better world as it was by the budgetary constraints of post-war Britain. But of course, in an aesthetic universe, there is no ethics without aesthetics and no aesthetics without ethics. From an ethical point of view, Brutalism was about creating a world that moderns could live in, a functional world, a world made for human movement and human dreams. But in aesthetic terms, it bore witness to the mystery of the human. There's an alien quality to the architecture which, if you buy the ideal it purports to uphold, turns the human into something we can no longer say we understand. Shades of Pinchon and Kubrick again, but shades also of some proto-brutalist artists worth mentioning. Lovecraft, for instance, was a brutalist Avant la lettre, I'm thinking of At the Mountains of Madness with its descriptions of the non-human pre-Cambrian city that a group of explorers discover in Antarctica. And here I quote a bit from that story uh, and just think of brutalist buildings as I read this. So this is Lovecraft writing in the 30s. The nameless stone labyrinth consisted, for the most part, of walls from 10 to 150 feet in ice-clear height and of a thickness varying from 5 to 10 feet. It was composed mostly of prodigious blocks of dark primordial slate and sandstone, blocks in many cases as large as four by six by eight feet, though in several places it seemed to be carved out of a solid, uneven bedrock of Precambrian slate. The buildings were far from equal in size, there being innumerable honeycomb arrangements of enormous extent, as well as smaller separate structures. The general shape of these things tended to be conical, pyramidal, or terraced, though there were many perfect cylinders, perfect cubes, clusters of cubes, and other rectangular forms, and a peculiar sprinkling of angled edifices whose five-pointed ground plan roughly suggested modern fortifications. I just love the way he's describing a kind of like a brutalist architect's dream city there, you know, yeah, where everything true. has gone brutalist. But what's great is that he's giving us what he envisions as the ultimate non-human city, but in the end, he says, it really reminded me of modern fortifications. There's something about brutalism, and I, I'm trying to transpose all of this into Sun's music. There's something about this sort of big monolithic art that is taking something really human, namely art, you know, and trying to give enough of it over to the object side of the, the thick end of the wedge so that it suddenly becomes something we don't know anymore, right? Uh. Rothko does that with painting and Sun does that with music. It's almost like we're going to derealize that aspect of art that we think we know, the human part, the cultural part. We're going to give over to the medium so much that what we get in the end will be unrecognizable and yet still human by virtue of our having made it. That's what I see as the essence of, of brutalism, which is why people were like, wow, you wanted to make the functional building and you made this? Like, how is this functional? <laughs> but it is functional. It, it, it's just, it's functional for humans we are not yet. It seems like right. for something we might become. And I sense that in, in Sun's music in general as well. 
I mean, there are some more specific parallels we could make between brutalist architecture and what Sun is doing. That one thing you and I have talked about on a number of occasions is how there's a certain beauty of brutalism as it is reclaimed by yes. nature. That's the other important part. Yeah. Brutalism somehow is beyond beautiful and ugly. It's going for something else. Yeah. Some maybe what I was talking about when I said sublimity. There's a whole trend of brutalist building on college campuses in the 60s and 70s. And so many of those buildings have been poorly maintained. And so you see the moisture streaks. You see places where climbing vines have been patiently working their way into the concrete, breaking it apart. You see the cracks and discolorations. And you also just see the various uses to which brutalist buildings are put, like housing projects like the pruitt Igo housing project of, I think, St. Louis, which was famously demolished. If you see the Philip Glass Godfrey Reggio movie, Koyana Skatsi, you can actually, that's one whole chunk of that movie. Right, right. The demolition of brutalist buildings, watching them all come crashing down. Maybe that's why I had that mental image of these sound organisms in Sun's music as being like vast dream buildings. But those buildings always look so sad and shabby because people would try to f make dwellings in them. And so you would see, you know, bits of trash or uh, yeah. graffiti or like maybe a burned out mattress or something that somebody left on a landing. And it's just like marks of human habitation always look somehow squalid and accidental against the gleaming surface of the brutalist building. It's something post-apocalyptic about it, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. And what you're doing is asking us to look at that as being a kind of, if not beauty, not, again, we're not about prettiness here, but a certain kind of sublimity. Yeah. That it's like the building reclaimed by everything that its architects proudly wanted to keep out. Yeah. Plant life, human life, animal life, the yeah. weather. Well, I don't know if they wanted to keep that out. They did want to, to set those things in a new kind of context, right? Which would be this concrete. Where, I mean, you have to realize how amazing brutalism, like the potential that these architects saw in concrete, which is basically like liquid rock. Yeah, it's like, wow, right. we can work with liquid rock. We can do anything right now. Yeah. And so I can understand the, and also at the time there was, as uh, this is something that Barnabas Calder in his book, Raw Concrete, gets into. There wasn't yet an awareness of the scarcity of energy, right? Um, people thought with nuclear energy coming up, people thought that we were on the brink of an age of unlimited energy. And so they thought, well, we can build these huge structures. Nobody could build these today. Just the sheer ecological cost of these buildings would make it completely um, illegitimate as a project now. Uh, plus just the sheer manpower you need to build these things. But yes, it's there's an emphasis, like, I think that, for me, the moment I love, fell in love with brutalism was the moment at the Ontario Science Centre in Toronto, where I saw all that erosion on the concrete at the back of the mm -hmm. building. Mm. And in the piece, I, I won't say it better than I wrote it, quote, if brutalist surfaces are so blank, I realized, it may be that they are waiting for nature to complete them with inscrutable frescoes and bas-reliefs. Mm. You know, and the idea is that nature always completes architecture, you know? Read Heidegger's writings on architecture and the origins of the work of art. Like nature always completes architecture, but in this case, it completes it by destroying it. 
You know, like, mm. and mm. in a sense, like brutalism is completed in its destruction. <laughs> and there's a beautiful kind of expression of impermanence in the very idea of brutalism. Like the sheer, the gall of thinking these structures could stand forever. They look like buildings that want to be there forever. And yeah, within 20 right. years, they're falling apart. <laughs> yeah. like, it's the tragedy, the hubris of it. But it's like this poetic hubris that I appreciate. It's almost like uh, mm, it was yeah. meant to be. I don't know. Oh, I love that because thinking about back to the Pruitt, I go, I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, housing project in St. Louis. From a certain point of view, that building only achieved its true form, its true aesthetic form when it was being imploded. Yeah. The images that you see in Koyana Skatsi of all those buildings falling like dominoes, that is the artistic expression of those pieces. It's funny you say that because earlier when we were talking about Stephen O'Malley's comment that he and, and his co-musicians are more like witnesses to something. It's like they're setting up an event and the event just happens and they're witnessing it along with the rest of us. I was tempted to compare that to a demolitions crew. Ah, There's a kind of artistry of demolitions. You set it up carefully and then, you know, you light the fuse and then you watch as your work suddenly delivers its results in the form of crumbling buildings. And again, it's like when you're a demolitions artist, <laughs> if you want to just compare this job to art for a second, you're dealing with non-human forces, right? You're dealing with physics mm. and explosives and all that. And you're, and you're setting up an event, which is, I mean, there's maybe the purest event is a building coming down. Anyone who lived through 9-11 would at least agree that that's not a nonsensical thing to say. A building mm. coming down is evental as hell. In a way, the most brutalist gesture of all is the demolition screw, you know, because it's setting up an event that you can, you, you can set it up, but you can't participate in it. Once it's happening, you can only witness it and hope and cross your fingers. And in a sense, that moment would be the, the moment where the brutalist building project is completed is when it finally just comes down. I don't know. I really love that, hmm. that irony, I guess. Well, one thing that our conversation is suggesting is that there's a good deal of death hiding out in the heart of brutalism. Yes. Which makes it seem way more metal. Yes. And, you know, conversely, there's a whole lot of life hiding in death metal, you know, and yeah. that's kind of what Sun is trying to tell us here. And so we're, we're in the zone, the in-between, the bardo of things where impermanence yields the eternal, strangely. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>